Hey boys and girls, welcome to the best podcast in the history of mankind. It's Monty's Rockcast. And now here's your host, Monty Calvin. Hey, 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 it's Monty. Welcome to my podcast. It is phenomenal. You know, a great wise man once said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, or something like that. And I don't know if that's true, because uh, I'm broke and I'd like to fix it, but there doesn't seem to be any hope of me ever doing that. That's pathetic. But when it comes to the rock cast, well, that is certainly not broke. Uh, unless you consider all the problems I have when I'm trying to make it. Oh, my lord. Yeah, you wouldn't believe some of the pain and frustration I go through just trying to upload this so you guys can hear it. I've got this website, monnysrockcast.com, and after weeks of recording the podcast, well, then I make a file and I upload it to my website. Well, the last couple of times I've done that, I get an error. And what that means is there's something corrupt in the file and I have to spend the next four or five hours figuring out what that is. And by corrupt, I don't mean like FBI or Hillary Clinton kind of corruption. Oh, okay. Oh, I see. No, it's usually something within the GarageBand app or my computer or something. And since I'm not the most technical guy in the world, it takes me forever to figure it out. But I'm very persistent, so I always get it fixed. So actually what I'm trying to say is that if it's broke, uh, you might want to fix it. I I find this extremely confusing. But if we're just talking about my podcast in general, eh, well, there's not really that much wrong with it. So I'm just going to keep doing what I always do. Which is uh, reading your top tens, answering questions, playing cool tunes, and maybe a little make-me-choose. So buckle up, bucko. Prepare yourself now for some fun and mayhem. This too shall pass, and it's going to get worse. I got some feedback about the last episode. Uh, Leland Anderson said, What up, Monty? Another awesome show. I'm digging the frequency of the new rock casts here lately. Well, thanks, Leland. Yeah, this summer I've been staying home with my stepkids, and uh, since all they want to do is watch TV and play video games all day, it leaves me a little time to do some paintings and uh, work on rock casts. So I've been trying to kick one out every couple of weeks. Uh, They still take me forever to do, but, uh, you know, I'm doing the best I can. Not good enough! Jeffrey Elliott said 206 was very entertaining. I had Aerosmith rocks and Love Drive as well. But what was really cool is when I was in school, our bus driver installed an 8-track player on the bus with four Jensen speakers ceiling mounted. We rocked out every morning and afternoon to Fandango, Rocks, Love Drive, Jailbreak, and Queen. Great days. Yeah, those were great days, and for me it was art class. There was a record player in there, and our teacher would let us bring in albums. 
And that was really the first place where I was exposed to kind of hard rock stuff. The devil music. These guys were bringing in Blue Oyster Cult and Black Oak, Arkansas and Uriah Heep. And I'd never heard anything like that. What type of satanic, whacked out crap is that? My folks had only let me listen to gospel music up to that point, And when I started hearing this stuff, I was uh, like, yeah, I like this. Hardcore evil. And back in the 70s, there was just so much great stuff coming out. So, yeah, good times. You've been twisted and turned over to evil. Now, if you remember on the last episode, I mentioned that in high school, I had a Ford Galaxy. And Jamie Roller said uh, he wanted to know what year that car was and if it was my first car. Inquiring minds want to know! Well, Jamie, I don't really remember, but uh, I think it might have been like a 68 or 69. Uh, (laughs) It was green, and my dad bought it for me used. And I had it from like 1976 until about 1984. And I guess it wasn't a bad car. It kept running all those years, but uh, it definitely wasn't a chick magnet. Because God knows I didn't have a lot of dates during that time period. And I, for one, am not surprised. But, you know, I've never really cared that much about cars. Uh, You know, as long as they run, I'm pretty happy. And I've never been able to afford a nice one, and I'm driving a piece of crap now. Uh, I guess the nicest thing I've ever had was maybe a Nissan pickup back in the 90s. I bought it brand new and drove it for probably like 15 years. But one of these days, I'm hoping to get a vehicle that is at least reliable. Because right now, I don't even trust my Hellmobile enough to get me down the street. Thank you for exaggerating! Let's see, I also heard from Doug Van Pelt from Heaven's Metal Magazine. I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard of that magazine and know who Doug is. I've actually known him a long time now. Back in the 90s, Doug and I went to a music conference over in England. And I also did a painting of Doug that he used as the cover of one of his books. And Doug said he's been listening to the rock cast and really been enjoying it. And I appreciate it, Doug. Now, does anybody believe that? I also got quite a few make-me-choose suggestions from you guys. For instance, Brian Sheafley said, Hey, Monty, how about Step Brothers or Anchorman? Well, both Will Ferrell movies, I loved them both. In fact, I like most all of Will Ferrell's movies, uh, even if they are sometimes a little stupid. I liked Semi-Pro. I thought uh, Elf was a pretty good holiday movie. But my favorite is still Step Brothers, so uh, I'm going to go with that over Anchorman. If I see it on TV, I don't watch it. I also got to make me choose from Mr. David Whiteman. The new face of evil. You know, I had somebody email me the other day and ask me, Hey, why is David Whiteman the new face of evil? I want to know. Well, that's an easy question to answer because uh, David sends me suggestions like this. Hey, Monty, All the World's a Stage by Rush or Frampton Comes Alive. He is so frickin' evil. Yeah, so you can clearly see he's not a nice man. Because these were two live albums from my high school days that uh, I just loved. 
And it's going to be almost impossible for me to pick between the two of them. This, this almost seems cruel. They both meant a lot to me for different reasons. All the World's a Stage was one of the first really heavy albums that I got into. Geddy Lee was screaming his brains out, and Alex Lifeson was just a guitar god to me. And it's still actually my favorite Rush album ever. But Frampton Comes Alive is the reason why I bought a guitar in the first place, and uh, it's the reason why I started playing music. I still love every song on there, except maybe Doobie Wah. That was never one of my favorites, but uh, God, everything else is just awesome. So once again, I hate to diss Rush, and I don't mean to offend any of you Rush nerds out there, but if I'm forced to pick one of these, I guess I'll go with Frampton Comes Alive. Where does this twisted logic come from? I also got a couple from Jimmy G. He suggested the Smithereens or Weezer. And I was never that into the Smithereens. I liked a couple of their songs, but overall, I loved Weezer. I am down with the nerd rock. Geeks! And how about Prince or Lenny Kravitz? And that's pretty easy because musically, uh, Lenny Kravitz is not even in the same ballpark with Prince. Because Prince was truly a genius and uh, Lenny Kravitz is just kind of cool once in a while. But I will give Lenny Kravitz this. He is a better actor than Prince was. Who didn't know that? Okay, here's a tough one from uh, Jimmy G. He says, Aerosmith or ACDC? Well, I know I raved about the Aerosmith Rocks album on the last episode, but if I take both bands and their full bodies of work, I'm probably going to say ACDC. And who would I have rather seen live when both bands were in their prime? I'm going ACDC. Here's some more Make Me Choose from Jimmy G. He says, Blondie or The Pretenders? Okay, well, this is kind of difficult because I wasn't a huge fan of either band, but I did like some of their stuff. For instance, I really liked The Pretenders' first album, but after that, only certain songs. And as far as Blondie, well, when I was 18, I thought Deborah Harry was kind of hot, but I don't think I ever owned one of their albums. So based on that first Pretenders album, I will say Pretenders. Oh my God, who the hell cares? Now I've heard this next one debated quite a bit. It's who do you prefer, Van Halen with Sammy Hagar or Van Halen with David Lee Roth? Yeah! For me, it just comes down to the songs. I love Sammy Hagar, and I think he's a great frontman, and he did a good job with Van Halen. 
And honestly, uh, there were times in the 70s and 80s when David Lee Roth just sickened me. Oh! But as far as the music and the songs, I like the early stuff with David Lee Roth. <laughs> they had a lot of hits in the Van Hagar era, but uh, the early Roth stuff kicked more ass. Okay, now here's a couple of unusual ones from Jimmy G. Uh, he says, uh, the Hellmobile or the Ben Huggins station wagon. Well, the thing you got to understand, first of all, is that we did a tour in Ben's station wagon. And yes, it did break down at one point and we missed a show. But it was able to drive from Houston up to the East Coast and back. And the Hellmobile uh, can barely make it across Kansas City. So I'm going to have to pick Ben's Vista Cruiser station wagon. Oh, God, I'm running. Ah, yeah. uh, Jimmy G had one more. It's uh, Meatloaf or Turkey Club. Mm-hmm, yummy. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let me think about this. Uh, if it's Meatloaf and a Turkey Club sandwich that I'm picking between... I'm going to go with the turkey club sandwich. But if it's Meatloaf the singer and a turkey club sandwich, I'm still going to go with the turkey club sandwich. Oh my gosh, that is so delicious. Next, I got one from Eric in Orange County. And Eric is going to force me to choose between wearing my hair like 70s era Tom Jones with the permanent while playing on tour with Galactic Cowboys or permanently shaving off my facial hair. Well, Eric, uh, I gotta say that under no circumstances would I want a Tom Jones perm. In fact, I would rather shave my head than have a perm. So I hope that answers your question. So that, that's your answer? I also got an email from Steve Elliott, not to be confused with Jeffrey Elliott. And Steve has decided that he's going to force me, whether I like it or not, and possibly at gunpoint, to choose between Zach Wilde and Jake E. Lee. And this is actually pretty easy because I love Zach Wilde, and uh, so no contest, Zach Wilde. But that's not enough because then Steve wants to make me choose between Zach Wilde and Randy Rhodes. And that is tough because I think they're both amazing. But honestly, I think uh, even Zach Wilde would pick Randy Rhodes. So I'll go with Randy Rhodes. Oh, but here's another tough one from Steve. He says uh, Gene Simmons or Steve Harris from Iron Maiden. Well, I love Maiden, and I love Steve Harris. He's an inspiration, and I think he's one of the greatest uh, hard rock bass players ever. But I'm probably more influenced by Gene Simmons. He's got the demon tone, and most of the time I've seen him playing with a pick. And Steve Harris plays with his fingers all the time, and I am a pick guy. So I will go with Gene Simmons. Steve also sent me a top 10 list, and this is Steve's top 10 favorite replacement musicians in bands. And at number 10, it's Mike Patton. And Steve says, face it, without Patton's voice, Faith No More would have never broke through, and the other guy's voice doesn't even hold a candle to Patton. Yeah! 
Yeah, you're probably right, Steve, but uh, I really like their other singer, Chuck Mosley, and I was sad to see that he died last year. I really loved We Care A Lot. I thought that was a great album, but uh, when Patton joined them, uh, you know, they did take off, and so uh, good for them. Patton's got a lot of charisma. He's a good-looking guy, great front man, so uh, yeah, there you go. But moving on, let's see. We got number nine, Wally Farkas, replacing Dane in Galactic Cowboys. And number eight is Yannick Gers from Iron Maiden. And yeah, you know, I hear a lot of people saying they don't like him for some reason. Uh, People criticize his stage presence and stuff. But I think the guy is great. Uh, I love watching him live. He's very entertaining. Uh, Yeah, I like the guy. Isn't he great? Number seven is John Bush. Uh, He replaced Joey Belladonna in Anthrax. And Steve likes both singers, but he thinks John Bush has a way cooler voice. Well, yeah, John Bush does have a great voice. And he was singing for Anthrax when we were on tour with him in Europe uh, back in the 90s. But I don't know. uh, When I think of Anthrax, I think of Joey Belladonna. He was their singer on Among the Living when I first started listening to him, and uh, he's their singer now. But that's just what I think. What do I care what you think? Number six on Steve's list is Rob Halford replacing Ripper Owens, who replaced Rob Halford and Judas Priest. Number five is John Karabi when he uh, replaced Vince Neil and Motley Crue. Number four is Scott Travis when he replaced Dave Holland as the drummer of Judas Priest. Number three is Mike Howe, and Steve says, I never liked Metal Church until Howe sang with them. It changed their style and makes them one of my favorite bands. Number two is the late Eric Carr. And Steve says, replacing Peter Chris's weaker sound with a bombastic sound that helped Kiss get back to kicking ass. The baby! And at number one on Steve's top ten favorite replacement musicians in bands, he replaced not only one, but two different singers in Iron Maiden, Bruce Dickinson. Holy crap, is there a better Maiden song than Moonchild? Uh, Well, possibly, but right now at this very moment, no.
can't ever go wrong with Iron Maiden. And that was a very good list, Steve Elliott. Thanks for sending that in. Moving right along, I got a question and a mini list from Dean Bedford. Dean says, over here in England, we don't get a chance to see my fave band, Galactic Cowboys. So I thought I'd ask you about your favorite gigs you've watched over the years. Top five. And Dean gave me his, which were number five, Y&T in Bristol. At number four in 1989, he saw the Scorpions and the House of Lords. At number three, he saw Rammstein. At number two, he saw Kiss on the Psycho Circus Tour. And at number one, his favorite concert was Devin Townsend Project in Brixton in 2013. Well, those are some awesome shows, Dean. I bet that was great. As far as my own list, uh, concerts I've seen, I've already done that on the show. And number one of all time is Rammstein uh, in Chicago a couple of years ago. And I also had ZZ Top and Kansas in there. But, you know, I thought instead of doing concerts I've seen, uh, I thought I'd do concerts I have played. In other words, my favorite moments on stage. I can't wait. I played in a lot of shows going back to the 80s. And it's hard to remember a lot of them, but uh, I just went with some of the ones that really stuck out in my memory. And so here we go. I've got 10 of them. And number 10 goes all the way back to about 1985 when I was in my first cover band. And we were called The Ride. And uh, we would go all over the four-state area there in the Midwest and mainly play bars. And I didn't really like playing cover tunes that much, especially in bars, because uh, it was just a lot of drunk people who were there to dance or just uh, get drunk. And so most of the time, the people who came to see us didn't care anything about the band or the music. But we did have this one gig that our singer booked at this little high school in this small town in Missouri. And it was a prom, and uh, those kids were there to have fun. And I was playing guitar back then in that band, and uh, I did this guitar solo in the middle of the set, and those kids just went crazy. And it was one of the funnest times for me on a stage ever. I mean, we weren't that good of a band, but uh, that night wasn't bad. It was horrible! Now, number nine was a gig that I played with the Morgan Cryer Band. And he was a Christian artist back in the 80s, and uh, we would play all kinds of places. It might be a festival with 5,000 people, or it might be a church. And sometimes you'd get these people who were really uptight and, uh, you know, they were afraid to listen to anything that sounded like rock music because it might be of the devil. But one of the first gigs I ever did with Morgan was at this place that I think it was a church, but it was in Oklahoma. And it was mostly college kids, and once again, they were just there to have fun. And they were just going crazy all night. Uh, The chicks were screaming like we were the Beatles. And afterwards, they were wanting our autographs, and I was like, yeah, this is happening. But I was only in that band for a year, and from there I moved on to The Awful Truth. And we used to play just constantly. We'd uh, have a gig almost every week somewhere, uh, at some bar or somewhere in town. 
But one of the last shows we ever played was in Austin, Texas at South by Southwest, which is my number eight favorite gig. It's a rather interesting story. The Awful Truth was only together for about a year or so, but we played a ton of shows and we got a lot of label interest. And it must have been around 88 or 89, I don't remember. But we got booked at South by Southwest, which is kind of a big uh, music industry festival kind of thing. And there was a big buzz on us, apparently. And we played this place called Club Sandwich, uh, you know, which sounds really lame, but it actually was kind of a cool club. And we went on that night, and the place was just packed. And from what I understand, there was a bunch of labels there to see us and all kinds of curious people. And our singer-guitar player, David Von King was real into the whole gothic kind of look. And he would just fill the whole stage with lit candles. And that night, it got so incredibly hot on stage that my bass was literally going out of tune. But we had really high hopes of getting signed, and so we just went at it full tilt and rocked our brains out. And at the end of the set, David smashed his guitar, and when we walked off that stage, we were feeling great. Here's where the story gets pathetic. Unfortunately, after that gig, uh, everything pretty much fell apart for us, and we ended up breaking up about two weeks later. On the one hand, the story's hilarious. Fortunately, though, uh, Alan and I went on from that band to form Galactic Cowboys. And one of my favorite early gigs from GC was uh, around 92. We were out promoting the first album, and uh, we played in Portland, Oregon. And I don't know why, but Portland was always a great place for us. And one of our first shows there, the crowd was just totally into it. And Ben and I used to do this thing at the end of our shows where I would run across the stage and I would jump into Ben's arms. And he would spin me around for a while and then uh, let me down and I would eventually go back to playing. Well, that night in Portland, we do it and he spins me around, but instead of dropping me back onto the stage, he just throws me into the crowd, bass and all. And those fans held me up, passed me around for a while, and then threw me back up on the stage. And that was just one of those fun moments from a really memorable gig. I bet it was! Number six was a reunion show for Galactic Cowboys that we played in Houston at a place called the Acadia. And we sold that place out and uh, it was just a great show. Number five is another Houston show. I don't even remember the place, but it was in 96. And we'd been out touring on the Machine Fish album and a radio station in Houston had been playing the single Fear Not. And when we got back to town and played that show, when we did that song, the place just went bonkers. And for the first and probably only time, I kind of had an idea of what it might be like if you had a hit song. And let me tell you, it was pretty cool.
Number four on my list of favorite shows that I've ever played was uh, Paris, France. Uh, it was around 96, and uh, it was on the Anthrax tour. And we woke up that morning on a tour bus in Paris, and somebody said, uh, hey, let's go to the Louvre. And so we did, and it's just this amazing museum over there, and it has the Mona Lisa. And we got to see all that stuff, and uh, afterwards uh, we headed to the club, and uh, we go on and we play, and the crowd was just incredible that night. And at one point, the whole crowd was just jumping with us, and uh, it was just an amazing experience all the way around. But number three was also very cool because it was at the Greenbelt Festival in England. And it was really weird because this was around 1990, and our first album wasn't even out yet. And we flew in the day of the show, and the promoter says, uh, you're going on last tonight. Uh, you're going to be the headliner, and you're going to replace Striper. And we were like, okay. And that night, we walk onto this massive stage with all the lights and sound, and there was about 10,000 people out there. And I doubt that even one person knew who we were. But we just went for it, and the crowd was just so gracious and nice to us that night and uh, seemed to have an awesome time. And we certainly did, and I will never forget it. I will also never forget, in 1996, on the Machine Fish Tour, going to play the Dynamo Festival in Holland. And I'm not sure how many were there that day, uh, but it was just a sea of people and the biggest crowd we ever played for. And it was definitely a metal crowd. I mean, uh, Slayer headlined that night, and uh, Voivod played right after us, and Stuck Mojo played right before us. But since European crowds are a little more open-minded usually, uh, they just uh, seem to really dig us. However, just like almost every gig I've ever played with Galactic Cowboys, uh, it would not be void of technical problems. Now, you want to hear a story about an idiot? I was all geared up to play, and my bass tech handed me my bass, and I walk out onto this humongous stage, and we opened with this song called Stress, and when it was time for me to hit that first note, I jumped up in the air. And when I hit that string, uh, there was not a sound coming out of my cabinet. And there I am in front of about fifteen to 20,000 people. And I turn around and I run back over to my tech and he hands me a different chord and I plug back in and uh, from there on, it was a great show. That sounds really good, doesn't it? And that would bring me to number one and the most memorable show I've ever played. And it was in 2009 in Houston, and it was on the first Galactic Cowboy reunion tour. And we hadn't played in about 10 years, and so it was fun just to get back together, period. And at the end of that show, a bunch of people from the audience got up on the stage and were singing along with us for the last song. And I looked out into the crowd, and there was my daughter Zoe, who was only about 10 at the time. And I motioned to her to come on up, and she got up there alongside me, and she just started jumping up and down. And honestly, that meant more to me than you can even imagine. And sometimes it's stuff like that that makes everything worth it. But those are my favorite 10 shows that I've ever played. And, uh, you know, that's my list. And once again, I'm sticking to it. I uh, fell asleep 
Okay, I think what I'm going to do now is answer some questions from Facebook. Not really a huge fan of that. If you spend any time on Facebook, you know that people post random questions for people to answer. But instead of answering them on Facebook, I just save the question and use it for podcast material. You're a genius. And so uh, let's start out with this one. Uh, I found this the other day. It's uh, if you could rid the world of one thing, what would it be? Wow, well, there's so much like, uh, you know, homelessness, uh, world hunger, people like Rachel Maddow and Whoopi Goldberg. Huh? Yeah, how about getting rid of that whole show, The View? I love this idea. But no, seriously, if I could get rid of one thing, uh, it would probably be uh, cats. What? And I don't mean the Broadway musical cats. I mean the felines that live in our houses and we have to feed. You're mean. To me, cats are pretty much worthless pets, and I have two of them. And the reason I have them is because my wife loves them. And I would put my foot down and say, there's not going to be any cats living in my house. But uh, I tried that, and, uh, well, you know. Pussy whips! I should probably explain where my hatred for cats came from. You see, it started years ago. I had just graduated from college, and I moved to Dallas, Texas to be in a band. And I was living with this friend who was in the band, and the guy had a bunch of cats. And I was sleeping on the guy's floor, and uh, all these cats would run over the top of me at night. And they'd wake me up, and they'd walk around on the dining room table and the kitchen cabinets, and I was just grossed out. And I said, I will never have a cat. And I didn't for years and years. And then I met Lindsay and, well, you know. Pussy whips! She's hot and very persuasive. What can I say? And so I let her get one. Uh, But then about a year later, she got another one. And I said, okay, but that's it. And so I've been dealing with two cats for the last couple of years. And I'd almost gotten used to it, but then about a week ago, she comes home with another one. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, three cats? And she was like, I got it from a guy at work, and he says if we don't like it or it doesn't work out, we can bring it back. And I would have said absolutely not, but, uh, you know, instead I just said, okay, I'll give it a shot. Well, to make a long story short, this cat was just a total asshole. It hid under the bed all day, it wouldn't let any of us pet it, and it hated the other cats so much that all it would do is hiss at them and try to scratch their eyes out. And it was so bad that even the kids were like, we want this cat out of here. And so Lindsay ended up giving it back, but uh, I've still got two cats, and that's two too many. You know, you're a joy. Next question from Facebook is, what is the weirdest compliment you've ever been given? Well, something that I hate when people say it to me that I think they mean it as a compliment, but I take it as an insult, is, you're pretty good. Oh, is that just awful? I know most people probably think, well, that's nice, Monty. Uh, What's wrong with that? Well, here's the deal. Anything that I do, the goal is to be great at it. I don't strive to be average or just okay. 
And when I come off stage and I'm covered in sweat and my hand is bleeding from pounding my bass strings, I don't want to hear you say, uh, you're pretty good. I mean, you might as well just tell me you sucked. Or better yet, how about you just say nothing? Because you know who is pretty good? People who aren't fantastic. So please, just spare me the uh, compliment. We're using air quotes here. All right. The uh, next question I found on Facebook is, if you could meet one of your base influences, who would it be? Okay, well, the problem I would have with meeting most of the bass players who have influenced me is that most of those guys are dead. Ah! Cliff Burton, John Entwistle, Lemmy, dead, dead, dead. I actually did meet my cousin D.D. Ramon, but he also died. But of the guys that are still alive and I have not met, I would say Tom Peterson of Cheap Trick. He's the reason why I bought my first 8-string bass, and he's the reason why there are 12-string basses in existence. He's got a massively awesome tone, and his band is one of the coolest of all time. Okay, I'm having fun with these questions, so I'm going to keep going with them. And the next one is, what was your first alcoholic beverage? Well, if you listen to this show, you probably know that I'm not really a drinker. I still never drank a beer, never even tasted it. And I know that's probably really weird, but, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, I have tasted a few things, and I don't really like any of it. I think the first thing I actually ever tried was wine, and I prefer grape juice. And I also tasted champagne and didn't really care for that. And the last thing I had was just a few sips of a margarita, and it was okay. But really nothing that I have any desire to drink a lot of. And I've never been drunk, so I don't really know what that's like, but I will say this. I'm sure it's fun and all that, but I've had a lot of alcoholics in my family and my life, and I find it really sad. I've had uncles and relatives and loved ones who have even died from it, and I have literally grown to despise what alcohol does to people. It not only can ruin their lives, but it can ruin the lives of the people they live with. And so I've just stayed away from it over the years, and it's probably best that I just continue doing that. You're bumming me out, old man. Okay, here's an interesting one. Mike Laser on Facebook threw this one out. 
He says, our old drummer from my band Archive Z is threatening to embarrass us all over the internet. What should I do? Well, unfortunately, this is kind of common these days. Before the internet, if a guy got all butt hurt and quit your band, there wasn't anywhere to go to whine about it. But now you've got Facebook and Twitter and message boards. And you can talk shit on your old bandmates and uh, tell everyone they're a jerk without fear of getting your ass kicked. Wow! And even though nobody really cares that much and thinks you're kind of a weasel for doing that, you can sit at home on your keyboard and feel like you're really getting back at them. Nice! When in actuality, you're just kind of giving them some free publicity. Oh no. Yep. Case in point, I had never heard of the band The Archive Z before today. So I say let your ex-bandmate talk. It just makes him look like a tool. And uh, unless you're in the Rolling Stones or some huge band, nobody really cares. It does not matter! Okay, let's see what else. Um, all right, here's a question I got from Facebook, but this was sent to me directly uh, to answer a question about Galactic Cowboys, and it came from Ken Hillier. And Ken is in a band, and uh, he said that he was watching a video of our last show on YouTube. And he says, uh, just watching the show, you guys are really tight, and there's a flow. You guys make it look so easy. Other than a lot of practice, what can a band do to develop themselves? Well, thanks for the question, Ken, and for the kind words. There's a few things that I would suggest, like before or after practice, uh, get out the acoustic guitars and run through everything at low volume. That way you can hear the vocals better, you can hear what everybody else is playing. Another thing that helps is to record, and I don't mean just uh, go into a studio and make an album. I mean, do some demos, listen to it back, and make sure everybody's on the same page. The third thing would be make sure the guys in your band are really good musicians. The better the players, the better the band. But more than anything, there just needs to be a chemistry. And if it's not there, sometimes it just doesn't work. And lastly, I would say just practice your butts off and uh, play in front of people as much as you can. Book some shows, get out there, and do it. A stunning amount of uninformed opinion. Okay, let's do one last random question from Facebook, and this one is, what's the greatest last song on an album or CD? Hmm, well, that's a question that I could spend an entire podcast answering, but since I'm right here at the end of this episode, I guess I'll just throw out a few that I like. Uh, there's a day in the life off the Beatles Sgt. Pepper's album. That was classic. Absolutely. Or Sky Babies by the Wild Hearts off of Fishing for Luckies. Oh, yeah. Or how about Speak to Me off of the first Galactic Cowboys album? I don't think so. Oh, well, that's a debate that could go on forever. So I'm just going to go with one that I personally love. It's a song called The Last Song, and it was the last song on the first All-American Rejects album. And it's so good that I'm going to play it for you right now. 
But before I do that, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate each and every one of you. Oh, wow! How touching is that? If you want to get a hold of me to ask me questions or make comments or send me top ten lists, you can do so on Facebook or at my website, montycolvin.net. There you can see sexy pictures of me, my wife, and even yourselves. And after you're done with that, you can order my CDs, t-shirts, and paintings. Or if you want, you can make a kind donation. You're not getting another freaking penny. But that's going to do it for me for now. So until next time, this has been Monty saying take care. Don't let anyone tell you what to like unless it's me. And rock on.
has been Monty's Rockcast. That's it. It's over.